Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. Welcome to the guests who have joined us here today. Glad that you're with us. Glad that you can be here to worship God with us. Amen. Let's pray as we turn our attention now to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you will hold us fast. We thank you and praise you that you give us all that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we pray right now that your spirit would be at work to open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us in your word today. God, that you would work by your spirit to bring transformation in our lives. Lord, this is beyond me. It's beyond any one of us. Lord, we ask then for your help in dependence on you. We ask and we pray that you would be honored today. God, that you would Help us to rejoice in you today through what we see in your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, last week my, my family and I, we listened to, no, wrong way, there. We listened to an audio book together uh, called Across Five Aprils. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a little, short little book. It's a great book. It's about a, a boy who grows up in southern Illinois during the time of the Civil War, and uh, in the course of the book, he writes a letter to Abraham Lincoln, uh, interceding on behalf of uh, his cousin who had um, deserted, and um, amazingly, Abraham Lincoln writes back to him. And as I was listening to this, I thought, man, how cool would it be to have a letter from Abraham Lincoln? And to be able to have this letter and pass it on to your kids and your grandkids and, and future generations. And I thought, but, but more amazing than that, how cool would it be to have a letter from one of Jesus' closest friends? Someone who uh, talked and walked and ate and listened to the teachings of Jesus. That's exactly what we have in this letter, in the letter of Second. Peter. And actually, it's more amazing than that. It's a greater treasure than that because it's a word from God. It's a word from God to us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter or stay open to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11 today, which Dan just read for us. And the main exhortation uh, is repeated twice in this passage, make every effort, verse 5, be all the more diligent, verse 10. Those, the root words there are related to each other. So Peter is insistent on us striving for moral excellence. And the reason for that is that faith without works is dead. So the message for us today is this, strive to supplement your faith with virtue and you will be fruitful and richly rewarded. Strive to supplement your faith with virtue, and you will be fruitful and richly rewarded. We're going to see the command, the reason, and the benefits of virtue as we go through our text today. So first, let's look at the, the command. The command is strive to supplement your faith with the qualities of virtues. We see this in verses 5 and following. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. But before we dive into these qualities, notice that Peter draws a connection to verses 3 and 4. He begins verse 5 by saying, for this very reason. It's absolutely essential that we put our text in its context. 
Why? I'm sorry, why? Good job. Because context is king. Amen. We're going to put our text in its context. It's, it's essential that we connect the command to strive with the promise of strength, power from God. If we don't, then the command to strive would be like being told to drive to Mexico in a car with no gasoline. And it would be just about as fun. You can't drive without gas in your car. You can't strive without God's power. So look back at verses 3 and 4 with me. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we see in verse 3. And God has also given us his precious and very great promises, verse 4. Why? So that we might partake in the divine nature. God gives us his power and his promises so that we would grow in godliness, so that we would grow in his likeness, Ephesians 4.24. To partake of the divine nature... We don't have to wonder what that means. It doesn't mean we become little gods. It means we become holy as he is holy, as Peter said in his first letter in chapter 1, verse 16. We know this because Peter tells us, he explains what it means as having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. We share God's holy and righteous character. Because the Spirit dwells inside of us, His Spirit dwells in us, we're able to share some of God's character qualities, His holiness, His love, His godliness, and so forth. What theologians call the communicable attributes of God. The point is simply this, that God has given us all that we need to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Everything that we need. So one of my favorite promises... God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paraphrase, God is going to give you everything you need to do everything he asks. Amen? We need to be anchored in this right off the bat. That's the foundation of our godliness. His power and promises guarantee your progress and perseverance. His power and promises guarantee your progress and perseverance in the faith. Now, verses 5 through 7 call us to this life of virtue, but verses 3 and 4 remind us that a life of virtue depends on God's power. Now, God's strength does not cancel out our need for striving. Rather, it fuels it like gasoline fuels a car. That's why regular prayer throughout the day is so important. Talking to God, remaining dependent on Him, asking for His help. We strive in the power of the Holy Spirit. And without that, the task is both impossible and cheerless, like trying to drive without gas. So we have to make use of the means of grace that are available to us. Bible study, prayer, fellowship, communion, and all the rest. Those things, doing those things is like putting gas in the tank. But too many Christians are running on empty. They're just barely coasting along. We need to see right off the bat that God has given us the power to live a godly Christian life. Amen? Now, Peter says then, for this reason, for this reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Like we said, God's strength doesn't remove the need for our striving. Christians have to actively pursue spiritual maturity. The word diligent or the word um, effort here means diligence, eagerness, or zeal. So there's no room for laziness when it comes to following God. We only drift downstream. We never drift towards greater godliness. Never. Like an athlete exercises and trains in the skills of his sport, we're not going to grow in godliness without intentional effort, without diligence. So let's look at these qualities. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So faith is the foundation. It's our faith in Christ that saves us. It's our faith that in Christ that unites us to Christ and gives us access to this power and these promises that we just mentioned. And Peter says, supplement your faith with virtue. That's the first quality. It's the same exact word that's translated excellence in verse 3. The word means moral excellence. It's a well-ordered life that reflects God's own moral excellence. But this isn't the virtue of the monastery. It's the virtue of the home and the marketplace. This is virtue. This is living out your faith in the course of daily life, in the way that you talk to your kids, and the way that you do your job, the way that you drive your car, and so on. Next is knowledge. That is knowledge of Christ and his word so that you would know God's will, so that you would have the mind of Christ, so that like Jesus, that we would speak and act in ways that are pleasing to God, our heavenly father. So make every effort to read the Bible and apply it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, and so deceiving yourselves, James 1.22. Christian maturity is not knowing a lot about the Bible. Christian maturity is living out the truth. Knowledge is crucial, but we can't stop there. We have to put it into practice. Next is self-control. This is the ability to restrain your emotions, your impulses, or your desires. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit that, that enables you to refrain from sin. Self-control is like the walls around a city that protect it from attack. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In ancient times, they built walls around their their cities to protect them. Like a city without walls, a man without self-control is vulnerable to attacks. His defenses are weak. He's easily overcome and defeated. Question, where do you need to strive to make every effort to have self-control so that you do not give way to sin in your words or in your actions? Now, just as this world is full of temptations, this world is also full of troubles. And while self-control helps us to fight temptation, it is steadfastness that helps us handle affliction. Steadfastness means the ability to bear up under stress or hardship and remain faithful. 
So endurance, fortitude, perseverance, moral courage. These are the kinds of words that describe this virtue. Steadfastness is staying faithful despite trials. And trials come in all shapes and sizes. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be an illness, a job loss, financial pressure, strained or broken relationships in a marriage or in your family or with your friends. It could be unjust criticism or snide comments or a hundred other things. It could be serious, though. It could be more serious. It could be persecution from society or from employers or from your government. Being steadfast means standing firm in your commitment to Jesus, staying faithful, come what may. I mean, we have great need of this virtue among Christians today. Steadfastness, though, always has this forward look to it. So it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. There's a forward look to steadfastness. It's looking ahead to the joy, looking ahead that we are able to endure with faithfulness now in the present. We endure courageously on the road to heaven by looking ahead. Next is godliness. This is reverence and devotion for God. Simply put, it's obedience to God because you love God. Obedience to God because you love God. We make every effort to be people who please God in area, every area of our life. Next is brotherly affection. This is simply love that we show to fellow Christians. And this is just one subset of the last and greatest virtue, which is love. Love is the crown of Christian virtues. Love for your neighbor summarizes all of God's commands for how we're supposed to treat one another and treat other people. Love is this spirit-driven choice to actively seek to do good to other people, even if it costs you. Love is costly because it demands that you put other people ahead of yourself. That's why Jesus is the supreme example of love. The Bible says God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to earth. He took your sin and mine on himself. He died in our place for our sins so that anyone who turns from their sins, who repents and puts their faith and trust in him to save them would be saved. They'd be forgiven. They'd have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If you've never confessed your sins, never asked God to forgive you and put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, let me encourage you to do that right now, even now. But I want you to notice that Jesus didn't come and die for us because we're so lovely or so worthy. He came and he did that because we are unlovely, unworthy. We didn't deserve that. That's love. Self-sacrifice for the good of another, even if they don't deserve it. Love is a virtue, not an emotion. Peter's not telling us to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward other people. He's asking us, he's telling us to, to intentionally act in a loving way toward other people, to take loving action toward them. Paul describes it this way, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, if you want to assess how loving you are, just take out the word love and put your name in the blank. Michael is patient and kind. Michael is not arrogant or rude. Michael does not insist on his own way. Michael is not irritable. Wow. Pray for God to make you loving. Amen? One more thing about love. Colossians 3.14 says, Over all these, all these other virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is not just the greatest Christian virtue. It's also the glue that holds all the rest of them together. So as Doug Moo puts it, without love, all the other virtues would be less than they should be. Now, at this point, at the end of a list like that, I hope that you're feeling your neediness, that you're inadequate in your own strength to do these things. That is precisely why we need to stay anchored in the grace of God, that he gives us all that we need to do all that he asks, like we saw in verses 3 and 4. Yet, we must make every effort. We have to show some holy sweat we're not that person in the gym who's just pretending to work out. The application is straightforward. Make every effort. Strive, strive to supplement your faith with these qualities of virtue, self-control, steadfast love, and all the rest. Now Peter gives us the reason why. Point two, the reason. Increasing these qualities keeps you from being ineffective and unfruitful. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Look there with me again. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with these virtues, these qualities, for or because they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Now, we could restate that positively. We could say, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will make you fruitful and effective. The word ineffective here means literally useless. No one wants to be useless. We want to be useful. There's a joy and a satisfaction that's, that's found in being useful. No one is more keenly aware of this than the elderly. They, they don't want to be a burden or in the way. They want to be a blessing. They want to be useful. And they are useful in countless ways, not the least of which is their accumulated wisdom. But their physical strength being diminished means that they cannot do as much as they once did or would like to do. Peter says, strive for these qualities because they make you useful. This is similar to what Paul tells Timothy, he writes, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You want to be useful to the master? 
Cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. Increase in these qualities of virtue, and you'll be ready for the master, ready for every good work. You'll be like the tree in Psalm 1, which we read about a moment ago. The person who delights in God's way and God's word is like a tree who's planted by streams of water. Its leaf does not wither. It yields its fruit in its season. If you want to be fruitful, then strive for godliness. Notice the expectation here is is growth. It's increasing in these qualities, progress, improvement. That's why we call it progressive sanctification. If a Christian grows in these qualities... They make him increasingly productive spiritually. Now, what's the alternative? He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So nearsighted they're blind. That is, they're so focused on their present desires that they forget the past and they can't see the future. They can't see anything else but what's right in front of them. That's what sin does to us when we're tempted. We get fixed, fixated on the the momentary desire that we have for pleasure, the desire for pleasure that we have in the moment. We get so nearsighted we're blind. I, I heard this story once about a man who committed adultery and afterwards, a friend asked him if, um, if he thought about the consequences beforehand. And the man was honest. He said, as, as, as he walked up the stairs with this woman to her apartment, he wasn't thinking about anything else except what he wanted in the moment. There was no thought for anything else. He was so nearsighted, he was blind. But that man didn't get to that place in one step. It was a slow progression of compromises over time that led him there. Whoever doesn't grow in these qualities becomes morally blind, or we might say desensitized to sin, leading them to further and further and further into sin. The point of verse 9 can be summed up like this. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be a barren tree that lacks these qualities, that has no fruit. Those who do not have and are not growing in these qualities are useless and fruitless. They're the barren tree that bears no fruit and is not useful for anything except to be cut down and thrown into the fire. They are not living as forgiven sinners, but as unconverted people. This is a strong warning to us. Those who do not have these qualities give no evidence that they truly belong to God and have received forgiveness. There's no increase in virtue or spiritual productivity in their life, and so there's no assurance of salvation. So Peter concludes by exhorting us to be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure because of its great benefits. This is point three, the benefits. Practicing these qualities brings assurance and rich reward. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Peter draws his conclusion saying, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's two benefits if you practice these qualities, two promises, two blessings. The first benefit is the assurance of salvation. We see this in verse 10. 
Look there. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And when Peter says you will never fall, he does not and cannot mean that you will never sin. He's saying you will never fall away and so fail to reach heaven. This is the opposite of the rich welcome into the kingdom in verse 11. The word fall can be translated be ruined or be lost. And Peter states this in the most, the strongest, the most decisive possible way in Greek. That if your faith is lived with these qualities, you will never be lost, ever. That's what he's saying. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints means that those who God has regenerated and called will be kept by his power. They will never totally or finally fall away, but will persevere in the faith until the end and be saved. And only those who persevere to the end are truly Christian, truly born again. If you practice these qualities, Peter's saying, if you persevere in the faith, then you will make sure, you will confirm your calling and election. That is, you will have the assurance of salvation. The objective reality of your assurance is grounded on your or God's election, your election. But the subjective experience of your assurance depends on your perseverance in the faith and the great promise of God's power that you will, in fact, persevere. That is where the experience of your assurance comes from. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. There's nothing that you and I can do to make an eternal decree of God more secure. It is already sure. But remember that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1.4. That is the purpose of your calling and election. And what that means is holiness is the evidence of your election. It's how we confirm it. In short, you know a tree by its fruit. So the first benefit of godliness is the assurance of salvation. The second benefit is a rich welcome into heaven. See this in verse 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now obviously these two things go hand in glove. True Christians will be diligent to practice these qualities. They will persevere in the faith. And in this way they will be welcomed richly into heaven. If they don't, they won't. Faith without works is dead. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12. Or as Paul puts it, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That was 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Ephesians 5, 5. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Are you starting to see why diligence is needed? Why striving for godliness is so important? Because all true Christians will persevere in the faith until the end. Yes, they persevere by God's power, not their own. But God's strength does not remove the need for our striving. You must pursue godliness if you expect God's welcome. If you supply your faith with virtue, God will supply you with entrance into his kingdom. It's the same word in verse 5 and verse 11. Supplement and provide. Same word. The picture here of this rich welcome is like the, the picture of an Olympic athlete who, who wins gold and they come home after having won the gold medal and they come to their hometown and there's this huge victory parade for them. I'm a big fan of Dude Perfect. I don't know if, if any of you watch Dude Perfect videos. They've got all these battle videos where these five guys, this is Dude Perfect, these five guys go head-to-head in a competition with each other, and at the end, the winner gets a trophy. And Kobe Cotton, uh, this guy right here with the white hat on, he just couldn't win. He couldn't win, he couldn't win, he couldn't win. It was, it was like embarrassing um, for him. And after four years, he finally won his first battle. And so they threw him a huge victory parade. They, they dressed him up like a king. He rode on a horse down the street. There were hundreds of fans. There was a big parade. There were signs. They tossed out candy. They released doves into the air. They gave speeches for this. I mean, like, it was a huge deal. And it was all done in good fun to, to, to support their friend, right? I mean, there were people online who've been waiting for Kobe to win a victory for years, right? The, the, the point here is that Peter's telling us that we're going to be rewarded for our diligence with a lavish welcome into Christ's kingdom. God has rich rewards in stores for those who persevere in the faith. Taken together, the promise of assurance and rich reward are meant to motivate us to follow Christ faithfully. Now, I want to try to conclude here with a, with a final illustration to try to put this all together, to try to tie some of these pieces together if I can. No one is born on a basketball team. This spring, we signed up Titus for basketball. We paid the fee. He knows who his teammates are. He's already got his number. He gets his jersey tomorrow night. He is on the team. Now, he didn't earn his place on the team. He he didn't get onto the team by his own effort or skill. This isn't that kind of league, and neither is Christianity. He's on the team because his dad signed him up and paid the entrance fee for him. But being on the team means putting forth the effort to go to practice and working hard to improve his skills and, and apply them in the game. Now, it's not about how good he plays, but that he puts in the effort to practice and improve and play. Again, that's not what got him on the team. That's just what shows that he is, in fact, a part of the team. The fans in the stands, they're not on the team. It's the players who are on the team. But suppose he never shows up for practice, never puts in any effort, never goes to any games. Is he really on the team? 
Not really. It's the effort to practice and use his skills and play the game that shows he's on the team. Now, suppose they went and they won a tournament, but he wasn't practicing or showing up or anything. He, didn't, he wasn't there for any of it. Should he share in the reward? No. God does not give out trophies for just showing up. Just saying, I'm a Christian, that I'm on the team, but you don't put any effort in to follow Christ or lead a godly life does not lead to eternal reward. That is not real faith. Real faith leads to growth in Christian virtue and godly character. Always. Doesn't mean that it's a straight line. There's going to be up and downs along the way, but the trajectory of your life is going to be growth in godliness. Now understand that as Titus's father, since I signed him up and I paid the fee, I will make sure that he practices. And I will be there to encourage him and to support him all along the way, especially as one of his coaches. <laughs> In a similar way, God, our Heavenly Father, has signed us up for his team. That's our calling and election. And he has promised to see that we grow in godliness. But here's where my illustration breaks down. I am not able to actually get inside Titus and give him my strength to play the game. But God has given us his divine power, his spirit as it is at work in each one of his children, empowering us. And he promises that he will bring us all the way to victory. I can't promise that for Titus. Titus could quit, but if we're truly Christian, we will never quit Christ's team. We can't. He won't let us. God promises in his sovereignty to complete the work he began in you. He will not let you be lost, as we just sang a moment ago. He will hold you fast. Our perseverance is guaranteed by God's power. Now, that doesn't negate our responsibility to strive for godliness and persevere in faithfulness. The point is, if we're going to be biblical Christians, we have to hold up both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, Peter in this text is emphasizing human responsibility. And the reason for that is because that's what his audience needs to hear. Because there were false teachers there who were promoting sensuality, and they needed to stand against that. This whole passage then encourages the perseverance of the saints. As one commentator said, assurance in this life and riches in heaven are the benefits of spiritual diligence and fruitfulness. So, brothers, be all the more diligent. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. But we are not left without the help that we need. Amen? You and I are encouraged from the very beginning that the Lord gives you everything that you need to do everything that he asks. His divine power has given you everything for life and godliness through Jesus Christ so that you will persevere in the faith until the end and you will be richly rewarded. 
richly rewarded with welcome into his eternal kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just thank you and praise you for the work that you have done, but also the work that you are doing and promise to do in each of your children through Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for the assurance of salvation and the promise of your power that we might persevere in the faith. And I just pray for each one of us that you would help us to do that. God, you know, you know where each person is at. Maybe there's a person in the room that needs to put their faith in Jesus for the first time. I pray that you'd work in their heart to draw them to Christ. Maybe there's people who need to repent of sin and come back and start pursuing you again in godliness. Maybe there's people here who need to recommit themselves to you, Lord. I know you know where everyone is at in this room, and so I just ask and pray that you would right now speak to their hearts and by your spirit that you would help them to take the next step of faith so that they might persevere. Do that work, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.